Yo, Chuck, run a power move on him. May I say something to you to give you a true knowledge of yourself and life so that the same glory and success attained by other men who understand themselves may be yours? Man in the full knowledge of himself is a superb and supreme creature of creation. When man becomes possessor of the knowledge of himself, he becomes master of his environment, the captain of his own ship, the director of his own destiny, the accomplisher of his own ends. Peace, peace. We are the Brooklyn Combine and we are at the Brooklyn Combine. And we are honored to have a living legend, icon, attorney who um, is our North Star for how we practice. Mm -hmm. Honorable Tony Rico. Yeah, and, and you know what? I'm going to do something that he's probably not going to like right now, but I'm actually going to, I need people to understand. Uh, for me personally, this is, um, this is probably this is definitely, no question, the most important interview that we've had. And it's not just because of his accolades as an attorney and his, uh, his uh, character as a man. Um, it, 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 I think years down the line, people may even listen to this and, and, and there may be wisdom coming from this that they didn't expect. So I don't even know how old this bio is. I think it's kind of old because I'm almost certain he's had more than 45 federal death penalty cases across the country at this point in his career, in his life. But it says over the past 19 years, Anthony L. Rico served as learned counsel on approximately 45 federal death penalty cases across the country. I would think that number is probably around 60 at this point, maybe 70. Um, and for those of you who don't know, who are listening, um, Learned counsel, the best way I can describe that as is the most experienced attorney in a death penalty case, which is the most serious um, situation that you will find yourself in under the American rule of law and, and jurisprudence. Uh, those cases include United States, United States versus Andre Cooper. I know about that case. I think that's the case he was with the, the great Ed Wilford on. Um, and Eastern District of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, which that case uh, was to penalty verdict. Uh, for those of you don't, who, who don't know, there's not a lot of skilled attorneys and advocates in this country who've actually went to verdict on these death penalty cases. Um, you know, he litigated to verdict, life verdict, in May 2006, United States versus Jelani Solomon, Western District of Pennsylvania, litigated to life verdict, November 2007. Um, United States versus DeAndre Bird, appointed in 2007 in the Eastern District of Michigan, case dismissed in 2012 by the government. And United States versus Jarvis Brown, 2008, Western District of Indiana, defended into a post-authorization plea to life in March of 2009. Um, before the New York State death penalty was declared unconstitutional in 2004, Anthony L. Rico served as capital counsel on over a dozen death-eligible cases, uh, one of them being People v. Corey Arthur, defendant charged with murder in the first degree and death of Jonathan Levin. For those of you who are New Yorkers, uh, Jonathan Levin was the son of the Time Warner CEO Gerald Levin in 1998, which was one of those cases, and he's had, I would say, dozens of those cases that hit uh, the New York press. Um, People v. Michael Witten. In 2003, six young men charged with the double murder of two New York City undercover police officers. Um, and I also, I know for a fact that he's represented people who have been accused of killing police. I know that because I actually was co-counsel in one of those cases, the Bostic case um, in Brooklyn, but he's also represented people, he also represented police officers uh, in wrongdoing and, and in sometimes killing people. Um, 
he uh, co-defendant Ronald Ronell Wilson, represented by other counsel, was sentenced to death by jury verdict, life verdict, life verdict subsequently reversed by the Second Circuit. Um, he is also served as counsel in several controversial cases. I feel like every case he's probably uh, is represented is probably controversial to someone. Um, but that was the World Trade Bombing Conspiracy case, which was the United States versus Omar Abdel Rahman, uh, the embassy bombing case in 1998, uh, the United States versus Osama bin Laden in 2001. Uh, he represented uh, Sammy Gravano, uh, as well as other mob figures uh, throughout his career. Uh, he was counsel for Detective Gascard Isnora in the Sean Bell case, People v. Michael uh, Oliver, that was in 2008. Since 2007, he served on the faculty at the Brian R. Scheichmester Death Penalty College, hosted by uh, the summer, in the summer by the United, University of Santa Clara School of Law. Um, I have benefited from that. I've, I think I've attended uh, two or three uh, Scheichmeister Death Penalty College, college um, uh, admissions, where he is one of the faculty and he's covered everything from future dangerousness to other substantive issues. He even, um, there was a video by a comrade of ours, uh, Akintola Hanif. He's actually introduced the death penalty com community to Akintola's video, the Newark video. Um, February 12th through February 25th, 2010, he was instructed for the Capital Case Defense Seminar in California, um, Monterey, um, he is capital, he is resource counsel. For those of you, listen, a lot of this, you're gonna have to do your homework because while people are talking and, and doing whatever they're doing, um, he's one of the people who's doing the work. Um, you know, the, the uh, resource counsel in the death penalty world is very, very important. You can't have a death penalty case uh, in, in a federal level without resource counsel. And resource counsel is basically the, the most experienced counsel who is really navigating what needs to be done from mitigation to trial to both areas of, of death penalty. But he's also, you know, he's won all types of awards. I, I'm talking about uh, 2004, uh, he got the outstanding contribution to the profession from the New York County Lawyers Association in 2008. He was named Attorney of the Year by the Metropolitan Black Bar Association. In 2008, he was the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, America Inn's Court Awarded for his professionalism, um, presented by uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Um, he was appointed as a National Resource Council, as I just spoke about, spoke about in 2009, um, for the Federal, Penal Federal Death Penalty Resource Council Project in Frankfort, Kentucky. Um, and you know what? I know um, this isn't who he is, even to list all this stuff. It's a bunch of stuff, man. Um, outstanding criminal defense attorney in 2012, um, fellow to the American College of Trial Lawyers in 2010, past president of the New York uh, Criminal Bar Association, um, the list goes on, and he's been practicing since January of 1982 after having graduated uh, from, I believe, um, Adelphi University and then Northeastern um, School of Law. Uh, and he is, for me, one of the um, foundations of advocacy and lawyering in our country. So for me, it's very important. I've, I've had the honor in my career of actually trying a case with him and being co-counsel on several cases and probably talk to him about every case that I'm involved in. Um, I, I've, I've been on briefs that he's written and, and directed. He, he teaches at Fordham Law with me, trial advocacy. Um, we've represented people charged with terrorism together, um, everything you can imagine. So. Um, you do your your homework if you listen to us. Tony Rico, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. 
Especially since you finished with that introduction. <laughs> I always feel very uncomfortable with uh, introductions. You know, they're they're um they're 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 important, no question about it. Uh, but they're chronologies, and um, chronologies don't really tell the narrative, but they're guideposts along the narrative and. Uh, Any time I hear someone reading all those kinds of things, my mind always drifts back to the fact that um, I'm really just like one of them scruffy kids that you would see on 8th Avenue back in the 1960s throwing rocks at tour buses as they drove by. And and um, as I'm sure as those people looked over at the little Negroes, uh, none of them in their wildest imagination could have thought that uh, one of those children um, could have accomplished those kinds of milestones. Um, so for me, it's, it's humbling. I, I know it's difficult, um, particularly for us as African-Americans, to hear other African-Americans being honored. It's, it's difficult for us. Um, for me, what's really being honored is the journey um, that you know, I purposely uh, embarked upon. And so, if anything, it's really just a, a confirmation um, that this is the right road that we need to be on, and these are the right kinds of decisions that we need to make. Um, and so, it's, it, you know, it's very humbling. Um, it is. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, for me personally, um, I remember being uh, in, my, in my room years ago as a teenager and watching, uh, I re well, I remember I, I always wanted to be an attorney. I, wanted to be, I always wanted to be in criminal law. I always wanted to be a trial attorney. And I would um, religiously read all of the local New York papers from the Daily News to the Post to the New York Times to the Amsterdam News. I would read it all. And I remember growing up, I would see, you know, there, there was like, you know, you knew who the Brofman, I, I remember it was the, 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 the you know, Shergels, Brofmans at the time, Slotnick, um, all these names. And I remember at a period, um, I would see Anthony Rico all the time. And um, personally, and this was due to my ignorance at the time, I was like, yo, who's this Italian dude? on all these cases. Um, and then I remember, I don't, for those of you who are old New Yorkers, it was a squeegee case. Um, and I remember you were, the, you were somehow involved in the squeegee case. Basically a police officer had shot a, 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 a guy who was, you know, trying to clean the windows, a squeegee guy. And, I remember watching NBC News, I think it was Chuck Scarborough, and, and kind of a cute black woman, um, Sue something. I don't remember her name. And, Sue Simmons. Uh, Sue Simmons. And they interviewed the attorney, Anthony Rico. So it was the first time I got to look to see the face. And I was like, yo, that's not an Italian dude. Um, and I saw that it was someone who looked like me. And that, for me, was very encouraging. And then years later, after I had left the DA's office, um, I'm sitting in court reading, and a, a gentleman walks up to me and was like, yo, what are you reading? And I told him, and he introduced himself, and he, it was you. And he was like, yeah, I'm Anthony Rico. And I was like, yeah, I know who you are. And that was the beginning of a, of a um, what was really, for me, very humbling for me was that that was a, 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 re, a, a confirmation that, you know, most people who was in that position, they're not, they're not looking at anybody. They're not acknowledging anybody. And um, that was very important for me. And that's, that's how me and you shook up, in my opinion, one of the most important relationships that I've had in my, in my life. Um, so, so I, if I never thank you for that, I just always wanted to thank you for that, if I have. Well, if I just say, I 
I remember meeting you, Ken. Uh, and I remember the first day I met Mally. I said, man, this dude is heavy. You know, I'm I'm sitting back and y'all are kicking it. Y'all are in your office uh, in the white neighborhood. Um, <laughs> I forget what part of Brooklyn that is. But well, it's all of Brooklyn now. But then y'all was somewhere. I don't know what you call it. But I don't know where it was. But it wasn't where you are now. And uh, you guys were um, just talking. Uh, all of you were there. And uh, Mally started like doing this thing, and I'm I'm sitting there and I'm I'm like checking this brother out. I'm like, yo, this brother's heavy. Uh, I don't know what he's doing in Brooklyn, <laughs> but his mind was like light years ahead. And then as each of as each of you like joined into the conversation. I was really impressed. I, I was impressed because here, like in Brooklyn, was our legacy being kept alive, um, coming from different perspectives. Um, Keith always seems to be deep in thought. Um, he, he doesn't say much, but when he does, he's like right on the point. Um, Phil is sort of like the soul of of you guys, and um, he's like he's like the type of guy that I would have hung out with when I was in school. You know, we had been doing our thing together. I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that, Tom. I'm sorry to hear that. He ain't that cool. I'm sorry to hear that. Just so <laughs> well, he can't be, but so cool. You know why? <laughs> but but and and then you know, Ken, there's you, you, yourself, and um, I was very impressed. Um, I, I said to myself that, you know, our future is in great hands, that somehow we are passing on to each other important information related to our struggle for freedom. And for a lot of African-American people, that conversation is a little too heavy for them. Um, you know, they told them about, you know, what time the Knicks is coming on. Uh, what time the next, you know, next American singer is coming on, or so and so's newest record or album or whatever you want to say? Who's the who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Um, but just thought about and reflection upon where we are and where we need to go was taking place in this office in Brooklyn, and I I, I felt like empowered by just being there, and I felt even stronger when I left. And it was really the beginning. I had already known Ken, but it was the beginning of my my friendships and brotherhood with Molly, Phil, and Keith. Um, now, um, I would say I haven't spent spent as much time with Keith as I've spent with everyone else. Um, the Keith is busy. Uh, he got all them children. <laughs> okay, and that's an awesome responsibility. Um, and so it's hard to catch time with Keith. Um, but I don't worry about it because I know that he's tight with y'all and y'all have each other. And that's a very important thing. Um, you know, Molly is one of these people that you really need to just like turn the tape machine on and just let it go and just throw words out there and just get it down. Get it down, get it down, get it down. Because God has blessed him with a superior analytical mind. Uh, boy, if this was slavery times, they would have hung that ass up a long time ago. Okay? And the only, the only reason why they wouldn't have been able to do it is because he would have had y'all to, to, to um, protect him and to ensure that he was safe. Um, uh, I really can't say enough about Ken, other than the fact that I'm always talking about Ken, uh, every chance that I get. Uh, all of like, all, all of you remind me of parts of myself, um, and um, it's such like, you know, I know my brow is probably like a little furred right now, um, 
And so why, why, why is that important? Well, it's important because I decided with my education that I was going to, I was looking for the group, you know, when I came out of school, the crew, um, and it wasn't there. And I decided that I was going to journey on and I wasn't going to be afraid. Um, you know, I'm not a predator type person, um, but I don't have no fear. I don't have no fear about these people whatsoever. And they know it when they're around me. Um, so why don't I have fear? Because that is what these people tried to instill in us, the pure brutality. And that's why when we hear these TV shows about these police shootings, and we see, brother, oh, I'm scared to go outside. I can't ride my bike. I can't go to Starbucks crying on TV. It's like, oh, shut up, man. Because this is exactly what they're trying to do. They are trying to intimidate you out of life and put fear into you. And so, you know, um, you know, my, my father, who was a, a World War II veteran, told me as a kid. In a boxing a, he, was a, he was nice with his hands, your father, too. He was a professional boxer. But he told me that there's a difference between um, having an appreciation for danger and being a coward. So I have an appreciation for danger. You know, somebody shoot, I'm ducking, okay? Um, I'm thinking. Um, but what this system has tried to put in us is cowardness. Um, an inability to focus our energy in any directed way towards those who oppress us. Turn it inward. Destroy one another, but never raise your hand to the person who is oppressing you. And so, um, for me, um, my journey was easy for me because I didn't like the alternatives. I, I, I saw what African Americans were asked to become to, to succeed and achieve in white institutions for lawyers. You were going to have to give up a part of your soul. You were going to have to change your vocabulary, your intonation. You was going to have to have your voice a little higher. Um, you were going to have to shame yourself if you wanted to succeed. And I decided that that wasn't something I was going to do. I wasn't going to do it because of who I felt I was. And I wasn't going to do it given the, what happened to my father in this society. And I wasn't going to do it given what this system has tried to do to every black man that's ever been born into this country since they brought us over here and changed. And I owed it to them too much um, not to then decide to journey out on my own. And so I did. And along that journey, I, as you guys know, I met the great Ed Wolford. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can't really even put into words um, what knowing Ed has meant to me and um, how he has helped me grow as a person. Um, I love Ed, everything about him. You know, he was, he was a real Negro, and Negro ain't the word I'm looking for. Except I don't want to use the other word on the podcast. That's a conversation for me today. But he was 150% all the time. Um, it, now that he's not with us, it's almost like I understand his intensity. Because it's almost like Ed knew he wasn't going to be here. Um, for the whole thing. And so he was a powerhouse of energy, of intelligence, of courage, swagger, of heart. And it inspired me just to be around him day in and day out. And, um, uh, and, and so, you know, we, 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 you know, we were on this thing together. And, and it's very interesting that, like, you know, you would say, oh, well, you know, you would see, let's say, him or myself on television or like we'd be in a newspaper or something like that. You know, we never intended to do that. You know, we never intended to be on TV. Like we weren't intending to be like um, celebrities or so people could look at us. We were just doing our thing. 
you know, um, you know, I'm pretty much a kid from Eighth Avenue, and Ed was from Seventh Avenue, um, and you know, I think it was like, yo, we here, we so look, we doing what people from our neighborhood do, no matter where they go, and it's like, yo, we here, we gonna be a force, and we gonna say what we gotta say and do what we gotta do. No, no ego, no, 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 nothing extra on it. It's just that this is what we think and this is what needs to be done. Now, in this legal profession, you know, I have the great honor of starting with uh, Juice, uh, Judge Bruce McMarion Wright. And, uh, you know, Judge gave me my start. Judge Wright gave me my start in this profession. I could not have been around a more intelligent, dynamic, and courageous man than Judge Wright. I remember at his memorial service, people were talking about how Judge Wright was before his time. That, you know, had he been born today, he would have been on the United States Supreme Court or he would have been here, he would have been there. And, you know, as I sat at his memorial service, uh, I was sitting there saying to myself, I really don't know what these people are talking about. Because for me, he was the right man at the right time, at the right place. Um, I came out of school, uh, you know, I didn't have any job offers, none. Um, you know, we were told this myth that, uh, you know, all we needed to do was to go to school and get education and this society would accept us. That's, that's BS. Um, Judge Wright offered me a job uh, before I had graduated. I called him up like a Friday, told him, you know, I'm graduating on Sunday. He said, all right, show up on Monday. And he fired the person that was working. And I showed up at Monday. And then we started um, two years of postgraduate legal training and could have been no better place than to be around uh, a, a, a black person of his uh, integrity, his intelligence, his courage, um, and he, we went everywhere together, did everything together. Some things we won't talk about on the podcast, we did everything together. And, I, and, I, and you, you know, know we, what, huh, on, that, on that note, mm -hmm. right, we, we play music on this, so, and I know you a music man, you play music, and you actually have a collection of music. So I'm gonna ask you if, if for, for a suggestion or, 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 or uh, uh, artists or whatever to play before we, we take this first break, then we are gonna get back to it. But I, I wanted to, you said something to me, we have a lot of conversation. Um, you said something to me a couple of weeks ago. You, and I wanna get into when we come back from the break, and and okay. I also want I, you keep talking about Eighth Avenue for people from people who are not from New York. He basically saying he from Harlem, a particular area of Harlem. I want to talk about Harlem, but you said a couple of weeks ago to me that I've been thinking about because uh, I, I, I want to. It's it's been weighing on me, and and I, I gotta really. I've been I've been writing about it, trying to figure it out. Uh, some some things that are personal to me. You said that we learn wisdom through wisdom is passed through us from general i'm not quoting you exactly but you basically said that wisdom is passed through us from generation to generation through pain and i've been thinking about that a lot um in my personal journey in life and um but for now we're gonna get to that but and and you in harlem um throwing them rocks at these buses but but if you could if you could suggest to us a song right now, who what what song would you suggest that we play? Or, or after, the rain, John, after the rain, John Coltrane. After the rain, John Coltrane. All right. Thank you. 
So we're, we're back and peace. This is Brother Molly. First and foremost, obviously, it goes without saying that those those words that you share about me, Brother Tony, I, I wish that I could as eloquently share them back to you concerning yourself. But thank you so much. I hope that I live up to half of what you've expressed with, with those wonderful sentiments. But you 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 closed that well, we closed out that segment before we went to the music break with Kenny making a point that you had echoed about wisdom. And you and I talk a lot as well, not as much as I would like, because I love those gems, but this is something that we mention a lot when we, you know, in computer science, you think about data, information, and knowledge and wisdom and how they are distinct and how they differ. Let's 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 get a little bit from you about wisdom as it relates to what Kenny was talking about, you know, this idea that this is how we learn and how we get this access to this wisdom is through that process of pain. You mind talking a bit about that? Sure. All right. Intelligence without knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge without wisdom serves no purpose. Um, so for us, the five of us here, who are we? We're the descendants of people who were brought here stripped of everything that they had, their language, their culture, their religion, their morality, uh, stripped of hope, stripped of every possible, stripped of love, Stripped of every human emotion. 
Placed into circumstances where the boys were forced to cower themselves uh, and watch the, den the denigration of a race of people for the sole purpose of providing pleasure and benefits for whites. Sole purpose of it. In order for that system to work, they had to prevent us from acquiring knowledge. And so it became illegal for our grandparents to read. It, be, it was a death offense if you were caught reading. Um, you were not to have access to information to feed the tremendous organ that you have called the brain. So there was a time period where many of our people's brains were consumed with the survival um, regimen that was put out there for us. That's true today. That's true today. National pandemic is going on and Negroes is having a debate over who's the greatest basketball player. So, but to stay focused on this issue of wisdom, the concept of wisdom, Lord knows that we were never supposed to take knowledge and, and, and couple it with something called wisdom. <clears throat> because it is through the exercise of wisdom that you maximize the best of your knowledge and the most efficient use of your knowledge. Without wisdom, you're down for everything. You know, let's defund the police. Let's do this. Let's do that. All of the ideas sound right, but they're not right. And wisdom is the thing that fine-tunes our intellect and fine-tunes our knowledge that allows us to go through this world and accomplish purposeful tasks to make better decisions. And so wisdom is certainly something that has been so far hidden and removed from us. Um, there is a concerted effort in this culture to ensure that we never have respect for any person of color to hand down to us wisdom. They are to be discredited. They are to be embarrassed. They are not to get our people to start thinking about the utilization of knowledge is through something called wisdom. And so how is wisdom gained? All right, can't get wisdom without controversy. By the way, you can't buy a book of wisdom. Um, you can go to Harvard, but you cannot take a class on wisdom. Nobody can teach you wisdom. Wisdom comes as a result <clears throat> of a revelation. And revelations come as a result of experiences in life. The more tragic this experience, the more profound the level of wisdom emerges from that experience. However, the person has to know that they are in a profound experience because we, we live in a culture of people, we are so manipulated that we don't even know when the word wrong is spelled wrong. We are led to believe and act in ways that are totally against our best interests. Even people with education, you, 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 go, you look at Facebook, like, what are these people talking about? Like, why are y'all so consumed with this stuff? It's meaningless, but we don't, we don't know it. Oh, hello. How are you, young lady? <laughs> are you one of the twins? Mm-hmm. Say yes. Yes. Which twin are you? Are you the good, are you like the best twin? Or are you just a twin? That's the cool thing. And so this, you know, when we look at like the, you know, like there was a time in my life, like I've always taken these time periods like to educate myself after I finished school. And so I studied for a few years on, you know, what's called, you know, Native American history. I studied the tribes. I studied their leaders because they wrote a lot of what the great chiefs said was written down. And so you can read it yourself. You don't have to go to the movies and watch some white person play the part. And 
And these were men that had profound levels of wisdom. Um, what, they, what, what they, part of their defeat was that they were great men of integrity. And they thought that they were dealing with people who had the same level of integrity. And so a man's word meant what it said. Well, what they told us is that the white man speaks with a false tongue. The Native American didn't have a word for I meant to say. You either said or you didn't. And so they were people that their strengths were turned against inward against them and was used to defeat them because they were up against a, 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 a serious predator group of people who have no problems enslaving millions of people, no problem putting people in gas chambers, millions of people in gas, and not a problem. They don't have no problem dropping uh, an atomic bomb on 100,000 citizens. Not a problem. In fact, let's do two of them in a day. We can do it. So in, today, in today's world, we, we're upset that these are the, des the descendants of these people are shooting unarmed men and women. I mean, what do you expect them to be doing? Handing out flowers? I mean, they're the descendants of people who have always utilized fierce levels of brutality to maintain social control of the system. The way this system will be undone is through wisdom. It's not going to be done through outsmarting these folks. It's not going to be done through just acquiring knowledge. You know, you'll be Professor So-and-so at Harvard talking about nothing after a while. But when that concept of wisdom comes to play and we can raise enough of us, both men and women, that have the courage of Fannie Lou Hamer, that's when we're going to see real change. We're not going to see real change. Like people go, oh, we see a sea change today. Oh, you know, things are different. Oh, come on. Yeah, then People are not students of history. We, we, we've been there before. We've done this before. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court decided a case called Brown versus the Board of Education. It ended 50 years of legal apartheid in the United States. It was a day of jubilation. People said that on that day, this is a historical day. Things will be different. Constant Baker Motley proclaimed that in 25 years, racial discrimination as we knew it in America would be over. We had made it to the promised land. That was 1954. Here we are, 56 years later, and the most segregated schools in this country are right here in New York City. And you go to a parents' meeting on the Upper West Side, and you think you're sitting in a meeting in Biloxi, Mississippi, listening to people trying to keep our children, Keith's children, my grandchildren, your children, from getting an education. They could care less if you don't get an education because they recognize that that step towards that undoing starts with knowledge. Information, knowledge, and as long as we, as long as we can produce another generation of booty-shaking, uh, irrelevant people who real, their only real interest in life is how much money they can get. It's another generation delayed, and so I'm a big, I, I believe a lot in something called wisdom. When I was young, I didn't have it. Um, I thought, you know, I, I didn't have it. But in time, in time, I have learned to think about things, not so much to learn them, but to understand them with a view towards application called wisdom. We keep going through horrific events, but we have other people provide us with the narrative. And since they're providing us with the narrative, you don't get the wisdom, okay? If a black man is strangled to death on a public street where a cracker has got his knee on his neck until he's dead, and this is a racist act, and if the narrative is, well, we need to reorganize the police, then you're not going to acquire no wisdom from that. Because reorganizing the police didn't kill him, okay? 
And if you and if the narrative is, well, we want to defund the police, then no wisdom will come from that experience. Because defunding the police department or giving kids money for social programs didn't kill the dude on the sidewalk. The actor on the sidewalk killed him, and that actor has been present in our history throughout the time that we have been here. That actor has been the arm, the brutal arm of white supremacy. And as long as others are dictating to us what that means, and look at the cast of characters that they put up in front of the mic to interpret what these events mean. It's none of y'all. Y'all live in Brooklyn, right? And none of y'all. Ain't nobody from uptown. No. Nah. I mean, I don't know where they find these people from. I mean, they're all cute. They look good. They look good on TV. You know, they're good, you know, outtakes. But they ain't saying nothing. They, they, it's empty. It's empty. How about this? Let's get the racists off the police force. Right? How about that? What's, what's my goal? My goal is to get every race on the police force. So if, if 50 cops from Buffalo saying they resigning because they don't want to be accountable to the public, goal accomplished. 50 gone, let's get some, I get 50 brothers from that neighborhood step up and do a better job. Now. If three, three of them in North Carolina say, well, we can't do our job if the, if the, if the community is not going to back us, they're telling you the truth. They want to have the right to kill. With impunity. Which is a right that has been given to them since we were brought here in this country. Now, that's a serious, that's a serious discussion. Right. Whether they use it or not, because now you're getting into a serious discourse about the very nature of power, not uh, who has it or or some other, some, some other such scenario about who could touch it, who could get at a table with it, but who actually has the power. Because whether you use it or not is not the issue. It's having the daggone power that's the problem. So whether a bad actor emerges onto the world stage or not, the fact that they can do it, we may as well be like any of those Greco-Roman figures who thumbs up or thumbs down. That, that entity or that larger force having that power was problematic. But that, that, that lends a lot of insight to this idea of, of wisdom and how to use wisdom. We, we definitely want to hit a couple other topics, but something that you right. said... Hey, I wanted, if, I, if I can say this, no, yeah. I know it's your point. No, no. Um, so, for example, right? We got five brothers here. Okay, mm -hmm. name me a wild black person. African-American in this society is known for his or her wisdom. Who might that be? Cedric the Entertainer? Uh, uh, Steve, Stephen A. Smith? Uh, Charles Barkley? Shaq? Uh, how about some of these astound uh, professors? Mr. Gates at Harvard? Uh, who, who wants to have a beer? He wants to have a beer? with a cop that could have blew his brains out in front of his own house. And after we have this beer, what are we gonna do? Kiss each other on the mouth? So we, this, like, this is what we hope for in our children. Um, we, we hope to give our children information. We hope to give our children knowledge. And we pray that we can share with them a little bit of wisdom. Because with that, they're gonna go out into this world, world well armed and well equipped for real change for us. So what is change for us? One word, it's called freedom. It's called freedom. Nobody talks about freedom anymore, brothers. Nobody talks about freedom anymore. At one time, our ancestors laid and cried themselves to sleep, wanting to be free. They remembered what freedom was like. We, us, have no recollection of what freedom is. It ain't a 70 inch flat screen TV set. It's not vacations to the Cape. It's not a new pair of Jordans. We don't even discuss freedom. 
So food and that, has been replaced. It's been replaced with a seat at the table. It's been replaced with somebody else defining for you what is the goal of accomplishment as opposed to yourself. And so I think that um, having, like developing uh, this thing called wisdom has also helped me to survive. It's helped me to reconcile that which I see with that which I know. And sometimes you can't, we're not, we're not able to, we're not able to fulfill or live through the things that we know, right? Like we know things could be better, right? So you look at a, a person who was an intellectual giant like Judge Wright. He was in a segregated army in World War II. Um, uh, living in a time when they know things, superior minds, knowing they could be better. How do you reconcile it? Well, for a lot of our people, they reconcile it through alcohol, drugs, and other forms of self-destruction to disconnect their brains from this painful reality that our people are, are caught in. We're in a painful reality, um, but you got to know it. So we hit hopping, you know, pants hanging down, got the mic, ooh, 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 ooh. we gorilling it up, and white folks is like, yeah. Keep that money going. And then the next dude is, I could be a badder nigga than the nigga that was before me. And so we try to out-nigger each other for the attention of the white man. And the attention of the white man means easy street money, the good life, millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars. And we, that, those dollar signs blind us to the destruction that this behavior is doing, not only to ourselves, but to our families and our communities. Okay. So, so wisdom gives you a different choice. Yes, sir. Sorry. One of the things that's been challenging for us as a community is, as we've um, as we've seen the Black Lives Matter protests and these corporate responses, throwing gestures at you know at us, we've been challenged with the idea that many people who are marching and protesting, protesting for their space and privilege, as opposed to protesting and marching for the concept of liberation. And so with that, yes, challenge, with that challenge, we've been seeing companies throwing money, to your point, right? Throwing money at the movement. And so what's your perspective on this white supremacist framework that people are fighting to get into and the dollars that are being thrown at what should be liberation. Any, any people that's in your circle that's motivated by money, they're going to be a poison that's going to destroy and stop progress. That's a fact. That's a historical fact. Um, personally, the NFL could come out with their Black Lives Matters, San Francisco 49er t-shirts. I wouldn't buy a damn one of them because they destroy the life of a brother. And personally, I'm not going to allow them, us to be sacrifices for their profit because that's what they've done to us in slavery time. They take one of y'all out, they make an example of them, and then everybody complies. And so, you know, what, overnight? Hold on a second. Aunt your mama been on them pancake boxes for the last 80 years, and overnight one Negro get killed, and all of a sudden we gonna change? Like, wait a minute, man. Y'all don't think that this stuff has been the subject of discussions? Alternative plans? We make, wait a minute, we making hundreds of millions of dollars on this product, but tomorrow we gonna do something totally different? without any market, come on, man, I went to college, without any market study, without any, like, testing it out on it, come on, man, overnight? Or do we have, like, an alternative plan? So if the pe these people start coming this far, then let's just erase the line and move it back a little bit. And they think they're making progress, but they're not. So I, I, don't, I don't, listen, a lot of views I have, they're my own views. I'm not one of these people 
that profess to be right. I'm not a preacher. I don't have a congregation. I don't have a syndicated talk show. I'm not interested in them. I, they're just my own sense of like time and place in reality. How how you gonna be my enemy? But now you supporting me. And what are you supporting me to do? So you you know I'm I'm hearing Procter and Gamble is gonna give five million dollars to Black Lives Matter. What does that mean? Who's wait a minute? Who is Black Lives Matter? Is Black Lives Matter a concept? Or is it people? How are you going to give five million dollars to the concept? Well, what's the concept? Um, funding the police. But and it, it's, the, it's something you said too. So when you really, it really brings it home for me, or illuminates the idea. We live in a day and age where um, this digital age really embraces data, and it takes this data. And this algorithm, and it, it boxes it up. It boxes it up. And every day, someone is sitting in an office who don't look like us, who don't have our perspective, who don't have our experiences. And he's telling you what that data means to Wall Street and what that data means to advertising and how it translates. And it's really clear and simple what's going on because from the money standpoint, you now have a generation of white men, majority of who have capitalized off of Facebook, Twitter, um, uh, your, your cell phone, where me and you in that courtroom and Keith, we, we see what they can do from a rule of law standpoint from, from um, compartmentalizing that data. And you're absolutely right. That's how decisions are being made of what concepts should we go with today. We have just listened to the first half of our powerful conversation with our brother, Anthony Rico. So tune in next week for the second half. Thank you for listening. Peace.